Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. First of all, we would like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta, Pangarang and Kaurna country. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Saturday the 15th of October. We always include a community service announcement asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible, and as soon as you can, to protect yourself and your community, get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this global crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Each month we bring you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, you'll get to hear Dr. Ian Astroglob Musgrave bring you his monthly sky guide, an astro treat for naked eye observers, telescopers and astrophotographers. And he always includes a tangent of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we'll give you an interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, astrophotographer, space scientist, or particle physicist. So right now, we're going to zoom across 15 time zones and talk to a wonderful astrophysicist, Anna Maria Delgado. Hello, Anna Maria. Hello, Brendan. Today, it's wonderful, and I'm really grateful to be speaking with a truly inspiring astrophysicist, Anna Maria Delgado, who is a CUNY CUNY alumnus and now a Harvard Astronomy graduate student who is doing her PhD at Harvard. And today, we'll be hearing about her entry into science and some of her highlights as an amazing career changer, astrophysicist, coder, and PhD researcher. Thanks for speaking with us today, Anna Maria. Thank you for having me, Brendan. Okay, so before we talk about your research, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Anna Maria, and tell us how you first became interested in the fine arts, science, and space? Yes, absolutely. So I grew up until the age of five in Puerto, on the island of Puerto Rico in the Caribbean. And then at five years old, my family moved to Florida. And as a teenager, I would have to say that the only school teacher I had that gave me experiences outside of the classroom, outside of the school, was my art teacher. He liked to send us to special art events that were happening. And maybe he would have us enter in like art competitions around town or things like that. And so that's how I got interested in the fine arts. And at the same time, while I was in high school, there was that comet Hale-Bopp that was visible in the night sky with a telescope. And, you know, My family didn't venture out much, but I remember one night I told my mom that the local science museum was going to be offering 
for the public to come and look at three o'clock in the morning, you know, four o'clock in the morning to come out and look through the telescopes on their roofs. And um, I had to ask my mom if we could go and, and she, you know, didn't even hesitate. She said yes. And I found that really interesting because we had never discussed astronomy or anything like that before. And somehow we both found it exciting. That's kind of how I got into this the fine arts and into science. You know, I, I really believe in it's really the extracurricular experiences that, you know, expose young people to career paths. Fantastic. And we'll talk a little bit more later on about the relationship between art and science. But now, could you tell us a little bit about those early ambitions and how the first phase of your career began as a photography teacher, and then as a special education teacher in New York's public schools. And where did you study to get your teaching qualifications? Yes, so I moved to New York City in 2005 to go to art school and become an arts educator first. And so that's what I did first. I concentrated in the area of photography and you know, I graduated in 2007 and I got a job right out of art school, but it was really hard to find a permanent job because we had an economic crisis crash in 2008. Yep. And then no one in, at least in New York, wanted to hire a full-time photography teacher. But while I was teaching photography, uh, some of my favorite classes to teach were the special education classes. So everyone was always wanting a special education teacher. And um, that's how I made the switch into uh, special education. Yeah. So then I went back to school, did a master's in education. I mean, it was, (laughs) it was a, it was a lot of uh, bouncing around, but um, yeah. And so that, yeah, I got my, I'm certified teacher in New York state and I taught in New York city public schools for you know, from all the way till I resigned in 2019. So, yeah. Okay. Well, that brings us up to this bit that I just can't wait to hear. What inspired you to make that huge leap from teacher, uh, special education educator to astrophysicist. And let's start with your first degree in physics at CUNY at CUNY. How did that come about? And can you also tell us how you found the rigors of competing your first undergraduate degree in physics? And did you have to move your home base to do that? Okay, so I actually love this story. So when I was a school teacher, One of the best ways I found to teach literacy skills is to teach a combination of something that you really enjoy as a teacher, a content area that you enjoy and that the students find exciting. And so for my informational reading unit, I always chose space exploration. And that would always open up a whole can of worms with the students They'd, you know, want to go beyond space exploration and they wanted to ask about just phenomena like stars and galaxies and what they are and how we know about them. And, you know, then it would be inevitable for one of the kids to be like, how do you know so much about this stuff, Ms. Delgado? 
And I was like, oh, well, you know, boys and girls, this is my hobby. I enjoy learning about astronomy and astrophysics as a hobby. You know, I used to attend uh, free lectures at the American Museum of Natural History. Um, I used to attend some public stargazing events that uh, the Amateurs Astronomers Association of New York City would hold. I watched all the TV shows, right? All the universe shows and cosmos and everything. And so that way I would just, you know, that was really one of my passions. And it was the students who convinced me to quit my job and go back to school and be, as they called it, a space scientist. And yeah, after a few years of having them be like, oh, Ms. Delgado, you should go back. You're still young. You could still do it. I made the switch and I didn't have to leave my home base because uh, the City University of New York, CUNY, has a strong astronomy community. And so, yeah, so that's when I contacted CUNY Astro and I was like, how do I make this change? And I heard back from them immediately and they were like, you know, don't kill yourself. Just go to the closest CUNY to where you live and you'll have to start with, you know, my introductory math and physics classes. That first year of, as an undergrad, I did that at night. You know, I didn't quit my job cold turkey because I was scared. You know, I was like, oh, what if I'm horrible at this? So I still had my full-time job during the day. And then I took my math and my physics introductory classes, like, you know, my calculus two I took over the summer. And on a Saturdays, I would take coding class. And on the weeknights, I would take like physics one and two. And yeah, that's how I made the change. Yeah. Fantastic. We often hear of students that are inspired by their teachers, but here we've got an example of a <laughs> teacher who was inspired and listened to her students. That's a wonderful and Cooney sounds great. So just before we switch into science mode and talk about your current PhD research in some detail, can you fill us in on that study trajectory and the people, apart from your students, obviously, who influenced the earliest part of your physics and astrophysics career? Yes. So in the early part of my astrophysics career, I had a really great support system through CUNY. They have a fellowship called ASTROCOM, which stands for Astronomy Community which is targeted to uh, students pursuing careers in research astro astrophysics and particularly targeting students from underrepresented minorities such as myself. And they provided not only research mentorship, they also provided career mentorship and workshops, not only like uh, coding workshops, but also like career-oriented workshops and even like how to read a scientific paper, which is a skill. It's not like, you know, reading any old book. So yeah, that was, that was my support system. They really encouraged me and gave me a platform to, to spring off of. Fantastic. I'm someone who really gets past the abstract, but yeah. <laughs> and what about now? I, know that you'll be doing a lot of the hard slog yourself on a daily basis on your own. But as you've intimated, we have heard here on Astrophys that it takes a village to support a strong career. Do you have professors or mentors or co-researchers 
who were working with you on your current PhD research projects? Uh, yes, I have all of the above. So I have my research advisor, who is, uh, I have a very supportive research advisor. I work with Lars Hernquist at Harvard, and he also has a large working group. So he has a great um, group of, of postdocs. And I work closely with one of his former postdocs, who was a postdoc when I entered Harvard and has now gone on to be faculty over abroad in the UK. So, you know, I have my main research advisor who, even if he and I don't work on the same thing, he connects me with people who work on what I want to work on. And he provides feedback and, and, and collaboration. And then also another graduate student from, from Harvard who, I, who was super supportive and when I first started. And now she's a postdoc over at Berkeley. But even when people move away, because this career can be kind of, I don't want to say transient. I, I don't have the, the word for that, but you know, it's, it's, we move around a lot is what I mean in, in this career. So people come and go from in an institution, but the connections that you make, and I'm very lucky to have been able to make connections in my research, in the, re, in the, in the content itself with a group of very supportive people and very collaborative people. And, and I do believe that it takes a village. I agree with you. Uh, and learning does not happen in a bubble and progress definitely does not happen in a bubble. Yeah, very good. And you'll no doubt make some lifelong friends in there as well. Thank you so much. Okay, now it's science time. First, could you tell us what you are doing now I did find you on the Harvard Astro website. Can you give us and our listeners the broad picture of your PhD research? I would love to. So I study cosmology, which is the study of the large scales, you know, of our of our universe and how our universe evolved. And I've had several small projects to get, you know, kind of a handle on it. And I look at the galaxy halo connection, which is the connection between galaxies and the dark matter halos in which they reside. I am also currently learning about the intrinsic alignment of galaxies and halos in their local environment. So are the satellites and their halos in which they reside aligned? Are they aligned to each other? Are they aligned to, you know, their local environment? Like that is really the question that I'm looking at. I'm looking at, you know, our large scale structure and I use simulated data to do this. Um, I'm not an observer. I'm a theorist. So I use large hydrodynamical simulations as well as machine learning techniques to, you know, explore this large scale structure of our universe. Fantastic. It's great to have a context for your work there. Okay. Look, I'll go back a little bit now. Can you introduce us to your most recent paper that was published a couple of months ago in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society? It was called... <laughs> Modeling the Galaxy Halo Connection with Machine Learning. But before we get into AI and modeling, perhaps we should talk about halos. What are they and 
Why are they an important research area for you? Yes, so halos make up the fundamental structure of our universe. They're made up of dark matter, which at a certain density, you know, in the beginning after the Big Bang, the universe was accelerating all at the same at, at, at a certain rate. And then dark matter, which has uh, gravity, starts to kind of clump together. And once it starts clumping together, once it becomes dense enough, it decouples from this expansion, right? So it no longer it expands along with the universe. It, it, it starts collapsing in on itself. It starts clumping together. And then that clump is what we call the dark matter halo. And so then the, the rest of the universe around this dark matter halo continues to expand, which this creates the voids between these dark matter halos. So these dark matter halos are really like the unit, like the basic unit of our, of our universe. And their gravity allows for, for gas to fall inside of it. And then the gas cools and, and then all of those complex pr processes of star formation and galaxy formation happen inside of, of these dark matter halos. So this is why I like to study dark matter halos. And they're really hard to study because we cannot observe them. We can only observe their gravitational effects, right? So that's what makes them really challenging. But through these hydrodynamical simulations that I'm able to maybe get a little bit of uh, insight into them. Fantastic. Now, I may or may not edit this out. About 100 miles from me here in northeast Victoria, Melbourne University and a team from all over the world have gone two miles underground in a used gold mine at a place called Stall. And they've put in a dark matter detector down there and they're looking yes. really hard for dark matter particles. And we wish them luck. It, there's been lots of attempts to find dark matter particles. And um, we're crossing our fingers that this laboratory will have some success. And um, yeah, it's very exciting. I, that's on Amazing. my bucket list to go and have a look in that gold mine laboratory. Amazing. Thanks for that. Yeah. Now, many of our listeners will be aware of the variety of ways that powerful computers are used to model galaxy evolution, but you've gone a step further in this paper of yours. Could you give us a big picture of your work with machine learning galaxies and those dark matter halos? Of course. So, one of the ways that we try to understand our universe is through galaxy surveys. So these, you know, telescopes will, will, will uh, observe the sky for years and they will take pictures of deep sky. So they'll get, you know, thousands of, of galaxies. And through those galaxy surveys, they are able to to constrain uh, certain parameters of our, of our universe. And one of the, the, the models that's really important for that is called the halo occupation distribution, which gives us a model for how many galaxies reside within a dark matter halo. And that is based on the mass of the dark matter halo. 
Now this model isn't based on mass alone. And so because of that, there is some, you know, systematic errors that comes along with that. And we have many future surveys uh, that are planned and even started now with, you know, JWST, everyone is super excited about, about that, but we have, you know, galaxy surveys that are gonna be looking at spectra. There will be multiple surveys that are gonna be doing very wide and very deep galaxy surveys. And so in order for us to really optimize statistical constraining power of our, of our cosmological parameters of our universe, we want to improve our working theory models. And so I use a simulation. So a simulation on its own is its own kind of standalone theory for the models. Like the, the, uh, the simulation that I use in that paper is called illustrious TNG. And illustrious TNG can tell us what the galaxy halo connection is if, it's, if we take this simulation to be truth. It's like, okay, the, here's the simulation. Here's our own little kind of contained universe. And it tells us what the galaxy halo connection is. And then I can take the analytical models that we have and compare it to illustrious TNG. And we see that there is some discrepancy there. And what I use the machine learning to do is I try and find other parameters of, of halos, other halo parameters, other, you know, of its environment, of its local environment, of its physical properties, such as it's like velocity dispersion, you know, based on the galaxies and whatnot. And I see if I can improve this theoretical model of the HOD, which is only based on, on mass, if I can improve this model by incorporating secondary parameters, okay? Yep. And so we have some great uh, results showing that uh, we can, in fact, you know, in this paper, we do show that we can improve the, the analytical models by incorporating these secondary halo parameters. Now this is, you know, I take this only as a beginning. You know, I hope to, to be able to expand this work in the future using much larger simulations that, you know, I'm currently a, a collaborator and a working group for some really state-of-the-art simulations coming out. And I'm excited about uh, these results, yeah. Fantastic. Okay, so what's next? Where has this work taken you now? Is your PhD by thesis defense or is it by publication? Could you talk us through some details of your current PhD research that you're working on now that's driving you crazy or astonishingly exciting or both? So the PhD here is by thesis defense. I've only finished two years of uh, my PhD here. And in the U.S., it's a five-year program. So I have three years to go. And I really am interested in some of the big problems in cosmology. And some of them are that there is tension, there's disagreement between the constraints on some of our cosmological parameters based on how deep the survey was from which this parameters was constrained. By that, I mean, CMB analysis gives one value. And then, you know, in, this, in, the, in the cosmic microwave background, you know, it, it's 
photons that have reached us since, you know, only a few hundred thousand years after the Big Bang, right? Yep. And then versus what I call shallower surveys. So surveys that don't go back that far in redshift, right? So like, you know, the CMB is like redshift a thousand. And some of these other shallower surveys are from like, you know, redshift one. So these different surveys are used to constrain cosmological parameters and they disagree. So that's something that motivates me into not only figuring out where's the disagreement coming from, like what is causing the disagreement is like, can I improve this? Can I, you know, develop some machine learning technique that we can incorporate into constraining these parameters and, and maybe making our surveys, you know, agree. That's fantastic. Thanks, Anna Maria. Now, I probably should have asked you about cosmology and camels first before we discussed your most recent paper, but there is an obvious connection. And I saw that in the camels project that mm -hmm. you worked on, there were over 100 billion particles and fluid elements in the simulations that you're creating. Can you give us a bit about how machine learning in this context of this work and what sort of computing systems do you use to create these simulations? Yeah, the, so the CAMELS, which stands for Cosmology and, and Astrophysics with Machine Learning Simulations, it has all of those particles because in total, there's over 4,000 of these like small volume simulations. And the CAMELS team, so I did not create the simulations themselves. I, I use their data projects and, and I uh, worked closely with the core group of the, of the CAMELS. I was an undergraduate student, Daniel Angles Alcazar, who's on the team. And I wasn't his student directly, but I was doing an internship with him at the time. That's the word I was look, I'm looking for. So I was doing an internship as part of my undergraduate uh, physics degree at the Center for Computational Astrophysics in New York City with Daniel Angles Alcazar and the CAMELS team. And what's exciting about these types of simulation sets, such as the CAMELS, is that they are made for machine learning because they create these thousands of mini universes, okay? Yep. So there's thousands of mini universes and each universe has slightly different parameters than the other one. And so because there's all of this variation, a machine learning algorithm is then able to, you know, marginalize over parameters that you don't need. You know, it learns the variation in the different universes in order to like find some uh, commonality that you're, that you're trying to extract out. And so right now I, I am currently doing a camels project, which, you know, hopefully, you know, in the next handful of months will be ready for publishing. But this project actually looks more inside of the halo instead of my first paper looked more at like the halo to halo correlation and whether we could improve this halo to halo correlation by knowing about the connection to, of the halo with the galaxies that's inside. Okay, this project looks more at what we call feedback 
within a galaxy. So feedback is processes such as supernova or active galactic nuclei, anything that blows gas out of the galaxy. So anything that blows gas out of the galaxy affects the its environment, not just the galaxy itself, but it, 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 it can affect the clustering of matter even outside of the galaxy. And that's one thing that I look at, right? I look at, at the clustering of matter, how, how matter clusters together. And so with the CAMELS simulation, with all of these different, like thousands of universes with different parameters, I'm able to see how it is that by changing either the, the power of this feedback or by changing the cosmological parameters, how this affects the way in which the matter clusters inside of the galaxy and outside of the galaxy. Amazing. That's fantastic. And this all happens on huge mainframe computers? Oh, yes. When, when scientists and groups run these large volumes of simulations, particularly the hydrodynamical simulations, like they are incredibly computationally intensive. So while the camels are, are small, they're only 25 megaparsec on a side, there's thousands of them, right? Yep. You know, I'm working on a team now uh, that's doing less simulations, or, you know, only a hand, like only a handful of simulations, but they're 500 megaparsecs on a side. So, you know, it's huge. And these types of simulations require supercomputers, like you have to compute them using supercomputers, multiple cores of computation, because they literally take like millions of hours of computing time. So if we were to not have supercomputers to do this, like we would never finish one simulation in a lifetime. <laughs> So, you know, we would be waiting for, you know, hundreds of years to finish a simulation. Um, so, yeah, all of this has to be done on, 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 on large supercomputers. Very powerful. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. My head's spinning right now. Okay. <laughs> Look, change of pace. Mm -hmm. Right now, it might be good to ask how the current worldwide COVID-19 crisis has impacted on your studies and your research. Yes. So the COVID-19 pandemic, the peak of it, you know, the March 2020, I was in my final semester of my undergraduate degree. Yep. At the same time, because this was, you know, my second degree and I already held a master's in education, I was also adjuncting. So I was teaching. I did have to, you know, work a little bit. Even after I quit my regular school teaching job, I did have to continue to have some, you know, income. So I was teaching at the same time and, and studying. And so switching over to, we, we did as best as we could to switch over to, to virtual learning. It was a lot of learning curve there. And then also like, I was so excited about my graduation and, you know, all of that got canceled, <laughs> uh, which was just, you know, so many people missed out on, on those kinds of events, but then even Moving forward, I started my first year of, as a graduate student at Harvard online. And, you know, I, a lot of the things, starting a new job or a new program during a pandemic, you don't realize the little things that you do 
in person in the workplace or in the, or in the classroom, such as, you know, you ask your buddy like, oh, I'm having a hard time logging onto this thing. How do you do? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and then the person next to you just, you know, or like you get a you get a, a document that you have to turn in and you don't know who to turn in. And you're like, who does this go to? And they're like, oh, that goes to such and such and such and such office. And you're like, oh, OK. And you walk it over there. Well, all of those little things that happened, you know, kind of organically weren't happening. So there was a lot of confusion. <laughs> there was a longer period of of fumbling around through getting the hang of things that doesn't usually take as long without having a global pandemic um, impact. But I do say that I do feel lucky in that I was, you know, in academia. We did have the, the, the fortune of it being a field which we can do remotely, yes. you know? So I was never without work and for that, I, I, I did feel fortunate. Yep. And it was a huge learning curve for everyone. There's been a lot of terrible things come out of it, but hopefully also some good things have come through that worldwide pandemic. Now, I see that you've done outreach work by giving workshops and STEM mentoring of undergraduate students, Anna Maria. Is yes. outreach important? Do you still involve yourself with it? And what's next for you? Well, absolutely. I feel very devoted and committed to, to the importance of outreach, particularly to bridging the gap of underrepresented minorities in the field of astronomy. You know, when I was an educator, you know, I was an educator in public schools for over 10 years and, and I was dedicated to bridging the gap in education of underrepresented minorities. And I continue that. And so through my STEM work with my STEM mentoring work with undergraduate degrees, either I give like workshops about, you know, to undergraduate students who are just starting research, like what to expect in your research uh, and maybe in an internship that you have, you know, how to manage meetings with advisors, you know, how to navigate relationships uh, within the astronomy field. And I do plan on not only continuing to, to be a STEM mentor, this is something that I do over the summers and hopefully I'm going to continue to do that in the, in the upcoming summers. I, I particularly feel, you know, I don't like using the word responsible because that sometimes that tends to have a negative connotation, but I feel a responsibility in a positive way to be a role model, uh, particularly to people from the Latinx community that which I'm from, to help them to navigate breaking into this field because the, the disparities don't just start now, right? They, they, are, they, they start all the way at like pre-K, at the pre-K level, you know, all the way in, in, in childhood education. So there's a lot of obstacles and a lot of gaps to, to close. And, and in my future work, you know, once, you know, the dream is of course that, you know, I'll be like this great faculty and have my own group and, and be, you know, pulling up my community with me. This is something that I'm dedicated to. Yeah. Yes. I think you hit it on the head there. There are still a lot of gaps to close. Now, 
What about art? We alluded to this right at the beginning of our interview, just before I hand you the microphone. Along with your great interest and expertise in photography and art, I can also see that you've pondered the relationship between art and science. Can you tell us about your current work in the world of art and photography, please, Anna Maria? So, yeah, I, I use a variety of mediums and sometimes, okay, so the, the most recent <laughs> collab, art collaboration that I did was uh, with another PhD student who just finished her PhD named uh, Xiao Han Wu, who participated in the Dance Your PhD competition. I don't know if you've heard of this. I didn't even know it existed, but she wanted to do this Dance Your PhD competition. And she is also a cosmologist and studied the period of reionization. And so she and I collaborated on how to interpret this through dance. And so that was super exciting and really fun. And I've also, you know, have done drawings about light, you know, just kind of wondering like, what is light? How, what are the ways that we capture light? You know, photography is based on light. As astronomers, we use light to learn about our universe. And, you know, I, I like to say, this is something that, that I kind of came up with. It's like, I always used to like to say that art and science are two sides of the same heart. Yep. But I always feel like science inspires my art. But I haven't found a way to have my art inspire my science just yet. Like, it, so far, it's only been a one-way street. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, very good. Thank you so much. Now, the mic's all yours, Anna Maria, and you have the opportunity to give us your favorite rant or rave about one of the challenges that we face in science, in equity or representations of diversities and minority, or in science denialism or career paths, or your very own passion for research or that huge human quest for new knowledge. The microphone's all yours. Thank you, Brendan. I could give a, a favorite rant about the challenges we face in, in science and equity. And one of the things that I say to young people coming into the field is that, yes, this field requires resilience. But the reason and the only reason that this field should require resilience is because the problems that we're trying to solve the scientific problems themselves are very hard. They're very challenging, you know? And so sometimes you, you, you work on a problem and you're doing your research and you're, you're, you're going at it for weeks and sometimes months and you get nowhere. So you have to have resilience in order to continue your, your, your projects and, and your problems and your, and your investigations with, with enthusiasm, right? I say that's the only reason we should require resilience. And it, I find it unfortunate that we also have to have resilience because we are trying to combat things such as, you know, uh, harassment in the workplace or, or injustice in the workplace and inequity in the workplace. And so, you know, I long for the day when the only reason we need resilience is because 
you know, our code breaks or our models are wrong, you know, and not because we're trying to overcome, you know, socially made obstacles as well. Yeah, and I think one of the ways we can do it is just if we all keep doing a little bit and try and maintain our own resilience and our own enthusiasm in the in the work that we do. Thank you so much. Is there anything else that we should watch out in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on, Anna Maria? Well, I am keeping my eye out on new machine learning methods. I am also keeping my eye out just for my own enjoyment. I am keeping my eye out on these stunning images coming up from JWST. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that inspiration is, uh, is, is vital. It's really important, even if it's not in the specific thing, you know, area of, of, of my research, you know. I love a beautiful photograph. Even these stunning photographs that have come out of our planets is just, you know, I think that this is what astronomy is, is, is in a way a field that just like art, it's for enrichment. It's for human enrichment. You know, we're, our jobs as, aren't vital for human survival. If I don't figure out the galaxy halo connection, that's not going to impact anybody's survival rate on planet earth, but it is the humanity in us that, that is enriched by, um, by astronomy. So I say, keep an eye out for anything that inspires you. Oh yes. And it was very exciting last week to see that image Mm -hmm. of, I think it was Neptune's rings coming out. It was just beautiful. It was gorgeous. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, look, Thank you so much, cosmologist Anna Maria Delgado. On behalf of all of our listeners, it's been really fabulous speaking with you. Thank you so much. I think your brilliant career change into astrophysics will inspire many of our listeners, including myself. And thanks for your wise words and especially for your time and your amazing schedule. And good luck with your next adventures. Thanks, Anna Maria. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you. Bye now. Bye-bye. And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored, and we're very happy to recommend that you can always get the latest and best space news from Rami Mandal at spaceaustralia.com. And for observers and astrophotographers, always check out Dr. Ian Musgrave's Astroblogger website. We'll see you in two weeks when we'll bring you Ian's November Sky Guide. Radio Wave!